Lord Christ. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, Go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Pray, pray, pray to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, some of you uh, know, I come from a tradition where we don't preach from the lectionary. I'm used to preaching entire books of the Bible. And so one of the things that I'm learning how to do is to preach from the lectionary. And part of what's involved in that is getting over my irritation when some of my favorite verses are not included in the lectionary. As today, in our reading from Philippians, which starts just two verses after one of my favorites. Now, um, some people uh, will tell you they have a life verse. Does anybody, anybody ever heard of having a life verse? Verse, my life verse is Job 19.17, which, which reads, My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own family. Uh, but that's not my favorite verse. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 3.15, which we started in 17. The only time you're ever going to get Philippians 3.15 read, by the way, is on the Feast of St. Matthias. Anybody ever celebrate the Feast of St. Matthias? Unless you, you have, did you go to a church called St. Matthias? That'll be a little bit. Unless you're going to a church called, and St. Matthias is kind of weird. He's sort of like the afterthought uh, apostle, like the Judas, you know, like the, they're hanging around waiting for Jesus to come back, like he, or to, to send the Spirit, like he promised. And they're like, well, you know, they're, they're sick of, you know, playing cards. And they're like, hey, how about if we, how about if we replace Judas? Let's, let's draw straws. And this guy named Matthias, Gets you don't hear anything about him ever again. Uh, he was known to the other apostles as New Guy, and, and he had a fish and coffee. But uh, unless you're unless you're here for the Feast of Saint Matthias, you don't hear Philippians three fifteen, which, in my experience, is an effective way to end any argument, especially in church. And Philippians three fifteen reads: All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. But that's not one of our texts, and so I have to preach the texts we're given. And the texts that we have today uh, are about place. I want to look especially at the Genesis and the Luke passages. Genesis passage is this weird, spooky scene of, of Abraham as he is making a covenant with the Lord. Really, as the Lord is making a covenant with Abram. He, God tells him, you need to cut these animals in half, the, the birdies 
uh, are really too small to cut in half, so you just kind of wring their necks and set them across from one another and arrange them. Uh, and the whole point of this uh, goes all the way back to a very ancient idea about making a covenant. The, the Hebrew word is berit, uh, and, and literally in the Hebrew you would cut a covenant. So by cutting these animals and, and, and having the, the, the halves face each other and going down the middle of them, the, the idea is you're communicating, may the same be done to me if I violate the terms of the covenant. Either I get cut in half or if I'm a little birdie I get my neck rubbed. Either way, it's not a good way to go. And uh, in, in, in cutting a covenant, you are making a solemn declaration, solemn promise. And in this scene from Genesis, the Lord, Yahweh, is making this promise. And he's making a promise to a pretty unlikely character. After all, Abram was was dragged off at a, at a fairly advanced age from his homeland and taken into this land that he, God says, I'm going to give you this land to take possession of it. I'm going to promise you. Abram says, how do I know? And, and then they, they do the whole covenant ceremony. And so uh, right in the center of this land, really the heartland of it, is the holy city of Jerusalem over which Jesus utters his lament. And it's a lament that Jesus utters because of his deep, deep sadness at what the place had become. Remember the psalm. The psalmist says, One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The temple was there in Jerusalem. It was understood to be a place of, of peace, a place where not only God was present in a real and unique way, but it was a place that was at peace, that was well defended, a, a, a place that his people could, could dwell securely. And so that's not always how it was treated. In fact, as Jesus points out, Jerusalem was also a place where the prophets were killed, where the people God sent to, to deliver unpopular messages were stoned and not like in the fun way, and had rocks thrown at them until they were dead. In fact, he, he sarcastically says, I, I'm going to have to make it to Jerusalem, and, you know, or I'm going to be doing this for a couple of days. Is sort of a, a, an idiom, but, but uh, yeah, eventually I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is is where it seems like where all the prophets have to go when they buy the farm. And I've longed, Jesus says, and this is God's voice. I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. So the result of this is, look, behold, your house is left to you desolate, abandoned. And actually, when I read that verse, my mind immediately jumps to the prophet Ezekiel, as I mentioned yours do as well. One of the reasons it jumps to Ezekiel is I did actually preach through the whole book of Ezekiel. You can be glad I came along after I got that out of my system. It took us 43 weeks and it nearly killed everybody. But, uh, but let me give you let me give you a little bit of the background. Uh, Ezekiel 
is a, uh, a priest. He is, uh, the prophet Ezekiel is a priest in Jerusalem at the time when Jerusalem is about to fall to Babylon, the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom had already fallen a hundred and some years before to Assyria. The southern kingdom was about to fall to Babylon, and Jerusalem was certainly not in a place of peace and security. It was a besieged city, and, and uh, before that, Ezekiel and many of the other prominent citizens of Jerusalem were dragged off by the Babylonians to Babylon. And they weren't dragged off to like downtown metropolitan Babylon. They were probably put in this place called Nippur, which is about 50 miles away. Nippur is where they were involved in a wetlands reclamation project. They were tasked with filling in a swamp. So you can imagine the, the uh, elites of Jerusalem society not only are they taken away from their land, not only are they taken away from their homes and their cities to this foreign land hundreds and hundreds of miles away, they're involved in back-breaking physical labor. They're all miserable, and Ezekiel is one of them. And what's worse for Ezekiel is not only is he dragged off to this foreign country, not only is he taken away from his home, not only is, is Ezekiel uh, stuck doing this lousy work, but Ezekiel is also out of a job. Because if you're a priest, the only place you can be a priest and do the priesty things is in the temple, in Jerusalem. Uh, every once in a while, uh, one of my Jewish friends will, will have people visit the synagogue. And if they're, if they're Christian, if they've read the, the Torah, if they've read the Old Testament, they've read about all these sacrifices that, that have to be performed. And they'll ask them, so where do you keep all the implements? Like, what do you mean, you know, all the implements for the sacrifice? Uh, well, no, with, with the destruction of the temple, uh, the, the sacrifices are not practiced, but at the time the temple was still standing, and Ezekiel was not able to celebrate at it, was not able to lead worship because he was gone, he was elsewhere. And Ezekiel has this, just one of the most chilling visions in all of, in all of the Bible. He has this vision starting in, in chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel, and, and again, Ezekiel sort of like the, the, the prophet that, that God almost seemed like he loved to abuse. Ezekiel, God had a, had a nickname for him that was not very polite. And, and, and he's sitting around there in his house. He's got the elders of Judah with him. And then the hand of Lord Yahweh came upon him there and looked, and I saw a figure like that of a human being from what appeared to be his waist down. He was like fire, and there up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. And he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit of the Lord lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance, entrance of the north gate of the inner court. So this, this heavenly messenger literally grabs Ezekiel by the hair and drags him off to Jerusalem to see this vision, and there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, just as I had seen in this really, really wild vision he had seen in chapter 1 on the plain. See, if you go back to 1 Kings, if you look at the, uh, the story of the dedication of the temple, this is when Solomon, who is uh, David's successor, uh, David had this idea that he was supposed to build the temple, and God says, no, you got too much blood on your hands. Your son can build the temple. 
And so in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Solomon establishes having, uh, you know, basically having taxed the people into oblivion uh, and, and conscripted a whole bunch of, of labor, uh, built this beautiful, beautiful temple. And, uh, and, and the first king will read the story about how the priests brought the ark of Yahweh's covenant. This was uh, when, when, as we talked about last week, when, when uh, God's people would go into battle, the ark would go before them because the idea is that God was fighting for them. So there's a sense in which it, 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 it signifies God's presence in a unique way. And they brought this ark into its place in the, the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. Once that ark has been put there, then nobody can go into that space except the high priest. And he can only go in there once a year. And they, uh, because they wanted to make sure nobody else went in there. When the high priest would go in there, they used to tie a rope around his ankle so that if he happened to drop dead, they could just drag him out. They didn't have to go in. Because only he could go in, and only once a year. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place, having left the ark there, and a cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests couldn't even perform their service. They couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. You may have gone to one of these high Anglo Catholic churches that use that much incense. Uh, they, they couldn't see, they couldn't perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This, of course, evokes the pictures when the people were traveling between Egypt and the land, and God led them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. The idea is that God is, is present there in a unique way. And so here's what happens in Ezekiel's vision. He says, when I was placed at the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw the idol that causes jealousy. What's an idol doing in the temple? We just read in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me, you shall not fashion an idol. And yet, here in the temple, not in, not in the temple complex, we have this idol established. And then he says, so, guess what, You're gonna, it, it gets worse. They brought me to the entrance to the court, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said, now dig into this wall, and so this wall, inside this wall, he finds a doorway, and go in, it's angelic tour guide says, and see the wicked and detestable things they're doing here. So I went in and I looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. And in front of them stood 70 of the elders of the house of Israel. Now we don't know if, if Ezekiel was having a vision of what was going on exactly at that moment in Jerusalem or if Ezekiel was was perceiving, was, was seeing what would, had been going on in Jerusalem, the idolatry that God's people had been practicing that, that led them to, to uh, lose God's favor. But either way, it's it, the last place you would expect, last place you would ever want to see this kind of thing happen is inside the walls of the temple. And so here is then what Ezekiel sees next, chapter 10. Says in the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim, within the cherubim inside, that were hovered over, uh, the fashioned over the ark, and it moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court, the court outside the temple, was full of the radiance of the glory of 
Yahweh. So the glory has lifted up from inside the most holy place and it's standing at the exit door, hovering there. And then we read chapter 11. The cherubim with the wheels beside them and then this, the, the, not, not the, just the symbolic representations of these cherubim, but the basically God's, God's taxi these majestic angels. They're, they're spreading their wings and God's glory is above them and then the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. So we have a picture of God's glory on the threshold of the temple at the exit door and then leaving out to the east. Let's go on. I have to believe that this picture would have been in Jesus' mind when he said, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you the truth. You're not going to see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118, which would have been a song that the, the priests would have, have chanted to the people as they came for the festival. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. And we, we read later on, I don't want to the surprise, but on Palm Sunday, people say this too. They say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And there they're, they're talking about Jesus, and maybe Jesus is pointing forward to that. Probably not. Because I don't think that's the coming to Jerusalem that he's talking about. You see, there's one more vision that Ezekiel has of the glory of God. That comes in chapter 43 of Ezekiel. And if you thought the rest of Ezekiel was weird, just read the temple vision that he has at the end. Ezekiel in chapter 43 has this vision of a new restored temple. And again, he gets this angelic tour guide who brings Ezekiel to the gate facing east. He saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice like the roar of rushing the land radiant with his glory. He says, the vision I saw was just like the one I had seen before when he, when he left out the city and like the one I saw in chapter 1 and, and I fell face down and the glory of Yahweh entered the temple through the gate that was facing east and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. And while this man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites, among my people forever. He comes from the east. The last time Ezekiel saw him, the glory of the Lord before he left was right over the Mount of Olives, which incidentally is where Jesus came from 
right before he entered Jerusalem for that last time when he was alive. Probably a complete coincidence. So this is why, by the way, when we celebrate the Eucharist together, after the Sanctus, we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're, I mean, that comes from a song where it's said to the worshiper, but the one we're talking about when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if Jesus is not the one coming in the name of the Lord, if he is not coming in God's name, then by all means, all the folks who rejected him were right to do so. And he was a pretender to the glory that is due to God alone. But if he is, if he is the coming king, well, then he needs to be treated that way. He needs to be acclaimed as king. He needs to be followed and he needs to be obeyed. Just as always, Jesus is polarizing here. He never gives you the meh option when he speaks. He never speaks in a way that people say, eh, I can take it or leave it. No. He astonishes people. And they have to decide what they're going to do with him. Are they going to reject or are they going to follow? But either way, he always upends whatever mental frame people who count him for him. And this is true for us, not just in terms of initially accepting our Lord Jesus as the Lord, as King of the universe. It has to do with how we live our lives when God is leading us to do things. Do we follow him as our King when he's calling us to stop doing things? Do we follow him as our King? Do we say when we're all together in church, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and yet not treat him all week as though he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. No, our Lord Jesus is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. He is worthy of all worship, worthy of all glory, and worthy of our obedience.